I think I'm rediscovering the power of mornings. Not like uh, some dumb neoliberal rise and grind vibe. And, and not really like just the nature splendor stuff from the silly little skit that I did last episode. Uh, although maybe it's kind of both of those things also. It's more like uh, the veil between worlds is thin. And maybe what I'm talking about here is like the veil between like our thinking, discerning brain and the part of our brain that can be sort of more directly inspired by things really triggered without the extra layer of like our internal critic or editor. I've got a really strong internal critic and editor that I think sometimes just makes me shut off completely. So anyways, maybe he sleeps in, maybe that part of my brain just sleeps in a little bit. And so when I'm access things at that time of the morning, I'm maybe a little bit more open to it, or maybe just throughout this whole insane thing that's been happening to us. I'm learning to just be more in the moment. That would be nice. And so I've found myself getting pretty inspired by random stuff. Alarm goes off, roll over, grab the phone. And instead of just like endlessly scrolling the shittiness of social media, although it it usually starts there. I've been finding stuff that just really captures my attention by, you know, like an actual piece of writing or even something as simple as an interview, but something real, something more than just like basic news gathering that I need to add my own perspective to, something that's got a little perspective. And a few times I've found it really sticking with me. Something that I read will just grab me and not let go and force me to sort of smash my own ideas up against how complimentary it is or how how much it contrasts with my experience. And often, and this is kind of magical lately, because it seems like maybe we're all thinking about different facets of the predicament we find ourselves in. Uh, I'm seeing a similar analysis from a slightly different angle or a slightly different lens that's really, really powerful and helps me sort of inform my own thinking. But it's very immediate. It's very visceral. And to be honest, a pretty sharp contrast to the more produced episodes that I've been doing that are taking me like two weeks at this point. It's not that they aren't worth it, but it's not like I can immediately really engage with some idea that has grabbed me in the morning for whatever reason and then just like won't let me go all day. So I think that's what I'm going to try to do here. I was, I've been working on a, a fourth episode and I, that's what I was planning on working on today when I woke up, but this thing grabbed me. And I think I'm just going to run with it and experiment in reading and very quickly responding to a piece of journalistic writing, in this case, an interview that that had a pretty profound and, and definitely unexpected uh, impact on me. So partially it's a practical experiment, seeing if I can just like churn out an episode more quickly than once every two weeks. But I also think it's like a an intellectual experiment as well, because I think there is a, a qualitatively different thing when you spend weeks laboring over an idea versus when you just really engage with it in a short burst in a way that's almost like primal or I don't know if primal is the right word but maybe more pure or something just in the moment so there's a pragmatic level to this experiment there's an intellectual level to this experiment but I mean the thing to really underscore and underline here is that this is very much an experiment so if y'all hate it we never have to do it again experiment. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode whatever, a little light morning reading. 
Okay, so I've beat around the bush, perseverated a little long enough. What are we actually talking about, Baumgarten? What struck you so deeply that you had to just scamper up to your attic and do a off-the-cuff podcast about it that you are now asking me, the listener, to spend my time on? Well, dear listener, it was in fact an interview in The New Yorker. I know. What more could a middle-class white man do in times like these except to just continue reading the publication that was literally made for him. I can't imagine anything more patriotic than just staying the course, you know. But in all honesty, I have not found myself super inspired by The New Yorker in a while, in years. I'm still a subscriber, but it's like that episode of The Good Place where somebody's version of hell is just being in a room alone and every once in a while a new New Yorker issue drops on a big pile of New Yorker issues. Since it seems you love humans so much, I'll torture you like one. All you'll have for entertainment is that giant stack of New Yorker magazines. Oh, come on. You and I both know I'll never read those. Of course you won't. So there's that. And then further not recommending this article is the title. The headline of the article is The Case for Letting the Restaurant Industry Die, which, to be honest, I'm sick of titles like that. I don't even know why I clicked on it. There was nothing else to contextualize it except that. And that's like I've read, you know, articles with that sort of a title for years, for decades, maybe certainly like since 2009, when it was all about, okay, wow, we just had this huge crash. Now this needs to die. This needs to die. You know, millennials are killing X. This Y needs to die. So I don't even know why I clicked on it, but I'm so glad I did because it's an, it's an interview by a woman named Helen Rosner and it just published yesterday. It's an interview with a an artist, an activist, and a writer named Tunde Wei, who's New Orleans based. Well, he's a chef and cook, so he's like a something like a performance artist who uses the medium of like food capitalism almost. It's fascinating, and it's talking about his writing, and it's talking about other writing that he's done. It's talking about a short film series that he's done, in addition to these art actions that he's actually gotten a pretty decent amount of notoriety for. So again, pretty basic online interview stuff, but it was the conversation itself that I just found almost transcendent. And the reason I'm choosing, because I've kind of had this manic morning where I've gone back and watched the video that he made, and I've gone back and read a different profile about him that's currently up for a James Beard Award, and I've read the essay that sort of spawned, apparently he's been sort of the talk of the, of the restaurant industry since this essay at the dawn of COVID happened. And it's not really a world that I'm that deeply enmeshed in. So I had never heard of this person before. So I could make this episode about any of those things, but I think I'm going to make it about this interview. One, because the interview just hit me like a ton of bricks, man. Just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it forced me, a thing that I almost never do, to go back and look at this other work and actually interrogate some of that, both the the writing that's been done about him, his own writing, his own art actions, this video that he's, the series that he's been working on. Tundewe was born in Nigeria. He's an immigrant to this country. Uh, I think his parents still live in Lagos. So he very much straddles both worlds. The fact of, I only heard about him through a white writer in one of the whitest publications, The New Yorker. That was on my mind as I was reading this. And then magically and almost kind of metally, that topic comes up in the interview. And so part of why I've got hair, the hair standing up on the back of my neck right now is I was thinking through things. I was engaging with this interview in a way that I almost never engage with writing anymore. I think my brain's partially broken from a decade of social media consumption now. 
I just don't have patience like I used to. But for whatever reason, this interview and the the sort of adversarial dynamic, it was both collegial and adversarial. It really, really struck me in a way that got me thinking in real time about the interview I was reading and then brought up organically and in a way that honestly felt kind of spiritual. The questions I was having then got answered later in the interview. So it's pretty meta. And then I'm just going to inject another layer of meta onto that, uh, which is super, super presumptuous of me. But I'm also going to include links to all of this stuff so that if you have a similar feeling, you can go do your own digging. And I'm actually not going to read the uh, sort of introductory paragraphs that Helen Rossner writes here, because one, I don't actually think Way's biography is particularly important. I really want to sort of engage with the ideas, but then also like Rossner wrote a couple pretty beautiful paragraphs. And so you should go read her words at the site that paid her to write them. But I think we do need just a couple details. Ways in his mid thirties. He was originally from Nigeria and moved to America when he was a teenager. He was an undocumented immigrant for a while, but he currently has his green card. He spent a lot of his life as many immigrants do in the food industry and has sort of developed a pretty piercing, but also wide ranging sense of the iniquities in the system that aren't just, you know, at the level of like the dishwasher and the line cook, but also extends all the way to the factory agriculture and farming practices and also into, you know, the displacement that happens when hip restaurants go into gentrifying neighborhoods. So as like a multimedia content creator and also as a sort of performance artist, that's a lot of what he's dealing with here. And when I said earlier that he sort of works at the intersection of like art performance and capitalism, literally what he'll do is create pop-up restaurants. So one in New Orleans, I'll quote from Rosner here uh, directly contradicting where I said I wasn't going to quote from her, but it's brief. One time in New Orleans, where he lives, he ran a lunch cart that asked white patrons to pay more than double what he charged people of color, reflecting the city's racial income disparities. And here's where I realized I'd heard of this guy's work, but I didn't know who he was. I've definitely heard of this project and a lot of the projects that come up uh, in this little intro here. I've known his work, but didn't know who he was. Right. So he's doing a he's doing an art piece. He's feeding people. He's charging white people more money than black people as a way of sort of just underlining the disparities all within a medium food that is capitalist in nature and also gentrifying these neighborhoods in New Orleans. So there's a lot going on in his work. It's really cool. And far from being sort of shunned by the food community, he's actually been embraced for being such a like outspoken voice. Cool. So I think I just want to jump in. Uh, Rossner sort of bridges between the bio portion and the actual Q&A with a brief sort of description of where Wei called her from when they spoke on the phone. This is Rosner now. Wei spoke to me recently on the phone from a public bench in the uptown neighborhood of New Orleans. The city is a COVID-19 hotspot where, as in so many other cities, infection and mortality rates are dramatically higher among black residents. Quote, right now I'm in a park and people are smiling and taking walks. They have their dogs. This is next door to the reality of folks who don't have work, who can't apply for unemployment, who need to put themselves in positions that are dangerous and unhealthy so they can survive, he said. Quote, that difference is the shit I want to address in my work. Not because I'm Superman, but because if I don't, I'm going to be affected. This conversation has been edited and condensed. The interview begins. 
Rossner, the thesis of your essay is that the restaurant industry is so broken that it's not worth saving. Did you already feel that way before the coronavirus shutdown sent the industry into crisis? Way. I had never said those words explicitly, let it die, but I don't think the sheer force of the idea is anything new. I will say that with most of my work, I'm always a little circumspect. So even though the sentiment has always been, let it die, I had never said those exact words. And it wasn't exactly like I was super comfortable saying it. I have people who I care about who are part of the industry. So in a way, the essay is euphemistic only because I know it's not going to happen. I know the restaurant industry is not going to actually die. So I have the space to be very forceful, but it wasn't just an essay about letting things die. It's also about what can rise from the rubble. There is something better on the other side. Rossner, is there something unique to the restaurant industry that makes it particularly deserving of death? Way. I don't think there's anything inherent about the restaurant industry that makes it more worthy of death than any other industry, but it's an industry that manages to encompass all the different realities of United States life. And I say United States because American isn't the right label to encompass all the folks who live here. I'll be very specific. Let's say you walk into Momofuku at Hudson Yards. That's a restaurant in New York and Hudson Yards is one of the biggest like new developments. It was like a billion dollar project uh, and kind of a symbol of the gentrification and just over the top wealth in New York back to way. You have your transaction, you're going to buy whatever they sell and you're going to leave. But your money is going to Momofuku, which is owned in part by David Chang and owned in part by the real estate billionaire Stephen Ross's investment firm, RSE Ventures, which owns multiple companies. The financing of Hudson Yards was done through private capital and also speculative capital, so there was debt involved. But not any kind of debt, a specific debt, commercial mortgage-backed securities. So all of that is to say that what makes the restaurant industry possible is maybe different from, say, the airline industry or mining or some shit. It's at the intersection of capital, finance, social life, food production, sustenance. It's all of those things. So I think it offers a very important lens to examine the choices that we make. And so one of the things I was thinking about here was David Chang's a New York chef. He's a local chef. And so the idea of, and I think Momofuku, he's got a bunch of different restaurants. That's not the first Momofuku uh, location. Uh, my wife and I actually ate at one, I think over in, I think Greenwich Village when we went to New York, but he has thought he's very much a New York chef. And I think he thinks about responsible sourcing of his food. But what Wei is bringing up here is that you if thinking about eating locally, farm to table stuff in a in a larger capitalist context, in a global capitalist context, especially in a place like New York, but maybe everywhere, probably in Spokane to some degree as well, the the farm to table eating locally and also the slow money movement where you're trying to keep as much of your money as possible in your neighborhood to the extent that people are doing that, that's like a veneer on top of this massive machine of global capital that he's just spent, you know, just a minute sort of unpacking here. And the restaurant industry more in places like Seattle and New York than Spokane, but it's still absolutely embedded in global capital, finance capital and all that stuff. I was just having a conversation with a, a restaurateur the other day about how he looks at restaurants like I think Texas Roadhouse, which is a, a big chain of barbecue joints. I think there's one in Coeur d'Alene, but they're all over the country. They do something like $4 million a year per location and they only profit $300,000. And I, it wasn't clear from the conversation if that's $300,000 total or $300,000 per restaurant. And it's massively leveraged, big chains like that. But in sort of any restaurant, the guy said something like the profit margins on these businesses has is more than halved since the 90s, I think, or maybe even since 2000. I was not having this discussion with him in the 
in the thinking that I would then do a podcast about it. But the idea in broad strokes is that the profit margins of restaurant businesses have been just massively crushed by food costs increasing minimum wage for employees, just the increasing costs of doing business, right? And it made me think a few years ago when the minimum wage started its upward trajectory in Washington state after the legislature passed those bills, what I was hearing was at the front line was that veneer of how tough it's going to be as a, not just a restaurant owner, but any sort of shop owner, any sort of company that has lots of employees working, maybe part-time coffee shop, stuff like that to absorb those wage increases and still maintain the bottom line. I never once heard a single person talk about how the interest they're paying on all the business loans they've had to take out in order to even make this thing possible were a massive constraint on even being able, the owners being able to pay themselves just a decent wage, whatever. These systems are massively, massively complex. And I don't think we, even when you're enmeshed in it, even when you are the, you know, the owner of a company or a manager of a business like this, I find it fascinating how we think about those very obvious hard costs and the, the costs that are literally necessary to making a business run, like having employees and paying them a wage you know, if you're not a monster, paying them a wage that like helps them survive and thrive and not about our increasingly financialized system of capitalism that can only make a profit in its industry by squeezing these minute little pieces of interest from the restaurant owner for the build out or for some sort of a, a cash flow instrument like a line of credit, but then going down the supply chain, extending those same sort of instruments to farmers and all the way down the pipeline, people who, you know, sell feed. Finance capital has a little piece of all of those things insofar as people are more and more reliant on loans or lines of credit to do business. And that all trickles down to the end user, the final user, either the customer who's paying the bill at the end or the you know person running the business. But a lot of those disappearing margins are not anything that that final business owner gets to see. It's stuff that's all been sort of taken off the top in like little increments f much further up the supply chain. And so all they see is, oh my God, my profit margins have been shrinking for 20 years or whatever. That's just some sort of like mysterious, hellish reality of their business. But now that I have to increase the minimum wage for my employees, that's a very tangible and very first order problem. And that's where all the anger gets directed toward the legislators or toward the employees, not toward the finance capitalists. I just find that fascinating. Teeny little clarification. I'm not trying to dunk on the individual business owners that are at the bottom of this supply chain, at the very end of the supply chain, right before it goes to the consumer. I'm just trying to call attention to the fact that as profits decline, which happens in all industries as they mature over the course of decades or you know hundreds of years, there are more and more little minnows trying to snap up the little whatever sort of meat and viscera you can get off the bone, these, these shrinking and shrinking profit margins, which only exacerbates the problem so that once it finally does get down to the restaurant owner or whatever, there's very little left. That's why, you know, the robber barons were making like 40, 50% profits on in industries that now make like 20 at best and probably more like 10. There was just a lot more money in the system, a lot more profit in the system. So there wasn't as much financialization needed. And since financialization has really taken off in the 90s to exploit this reality, it's only gotten worse. It's compounded the impact. And because, like I was suggesting before, the face of finance capital isn't like 
evil Demogorgon Jamie Dimon at the head of Chase Bank. It's your friendly neighborhood banker. It obscures what's going on and hides the reality that it's finance capital just sucking the last meat off the bone before it gets to you. So I guess what I'm saying is if you have a banker that you love who's a friend of yours, uh, love the player, hate the game. I know Kevin Spacey is capital C canceled, but there's no more perfect quote to illustrate this than... The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. All right, back to the interview. Rosner continues... It makes me think of something in the Minneapolis restaurant critic Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl tweeted in the early days of the coronavirus crisis. That was kind of a tongue twister, sorry. Tweeted in the early days of the coronavirus crisis, which has been on my mind a lot. She wrote that restaurants are the closest thing the United States has to a social safety net. If you lose your job, you try to find work in a restaurant. If you're formally incarcerated, you can get a job in a restaurant. If you're undocumented, restaurants will hire you. Way just tease off here. I love it. I don't know if I like that. There's a conflation there of a safety net with employment and with precarious employment at that. It's sort of like saying that because we don't have socialized mental health care in this country, that prisons and jails are the closest things we have to that. And so if we close down prisons and jails, we're leaving these folks no option but to be on the street. Can I get an A motherfucking men? There's going to be a jail episode at some point. The Spokane County Jail is like the second largest mental health facility in the state of Washington, and nobody talks about it. Way continues, I'm not equating restaurant work to being in prison, but I think the biggest issue with unemployment or with employment in general anywhere in the world, but especially in the U.S., is lack of choice. The existence of precarious jobs is not the same as security. On the face of it, that perspective sounds like an excuse to keep an industry going that's problematic. It sounds terrible. It's like someone saying, stay in this marriage, even though you're suffering terribly, stay in it for your children. I totally agree. We need to start thinking about this system, not in terms of the small amount of, you can't even call it security that it provides us as though we're grateful for it. We need to be angry at how little it provides. So then Rosner clarifies, I think she meant it critically, critical of America, as well as sort of hand-wringing about the state of restaurant employment. And Wei replies, oh, well, in that case, as long as it's not being used as an excuse to save the industry, then I agree with her. I don't think we should save anything that causes pain and destruction. I want to be clear that I'm only talking about the pain and destruction that restaurants caused. I don't think they cause pain and destruction to the exclusion of everything else. They do contribute value. Rossner, in your hypothetical rebirth of the industry, are there affirmative ways you think we can lessen the pain and destruction and increase the value? way. There are things restaurants can do, but it's hard to do them in a system that doesn't already, to use your word, affirm those values. It's not like I care about restaurants or workers more than a restaurant owner or a chef, but I do think they are loath to see a future other than what already exists. That's because of their investment in the current system, which benefits them. I don't mean to say that the benefit they accrue is so large and so bountiful that they're consciously trying to keep workers down, though I'm sure that's true for some corporations. What's more true is that privilege and power become invisible when you have them. Even restaurant owners who may care about their workers ultimately care more about themselves. Workers care about themselves too, but they don't have the power to act on that care. I'm losing my point. What was the question? Okay, he's losing his point, but it's, it, this is absolutely key, and I've thought about this all the time. And to some extent, it's happening right now with COVID around the way business owners, small business owners, the petty bourgeois is even putting it kindly in some cases, 
people who are barely scraping by and just happen to be on paper self-employed so they can't get uh, you know, unemployment or the other benefits that wage earners have fought for and won and have. Those are some of the people panicking the absolute hardest because as inadequate as our safety net is for workers, it's even worse for self-employed people. And so that's where there's this spectrum of, we think of, oh, I own a business. Uber contractors are technically business owners insofar as they do they pay a self-employment tax. They have none of the access to the safety net that wage earners have, but they are definitely not bosses living high on the hog. And because the service industry has been impacted so heavily by this, we're seeing those, you you know, self-employed workers fighting to get on unemployment. And it's actually happening in states like Washington, which is good, but it's actually not happening fast enough. I literally just saw a devastating post on Facebook today about a woman whose brother had lost his job due to coronavirus and who had been unable to get on unemployment and had been living in his car and had been refusing help from the family, but he disappeared. And the, the subtext was she's worried that he's harmed himself. So Way's point here is super valid. And I don't think it really gets underscored enough that there's this point of friction in our system where workers know they're being exploited, bosses know they're doing the exploiting, but there's this middle ground. And I'm going to be totally honest. I'm in that middle ground. I'm a self-employed person who also, you know, has the benefit of um, employing other people. People like me go either way. You know, there's like some number of small business owners who are like, son, I'm the boss. I'm the boss man. I'm a temporarily embarrassed millionaire and I'm just, I'm helping you feed your family, son. You better appreciate me. And then there's probably a lot of people in the middle who don't think about this stuff much at all. Uh, just try to put their head down and, and make the ends meet. And then there's people who are like, Ugh. that deep exhale has been most of the last two years for me. We're like, Ugh. God, this is a tenuous position to be in. It could fall apart at any time. The fact that I have people who are on the payroll next to me that I'm responsible for does not give me a feeling of power, although it is very much, it is power. I don't want to say that it's not. It gives me a feeling of responsibility that my gut just churns at. Just, oh, God. So we'll get more into the importance, I think, of small business people being on more on the side of workers than they are on the side of big business uh, later on. But for now, I just thought this was so important that if you have the good fortune to be a restaurateur, to be a business owner, whatever, it's actually, in my mind, your responsibility to look at those larger structures and see how you are invisibly benefiting from them and how those same structures exploit workers. And again, to Wei's point, and this is the brilliant part, you don't have to be a millionaire to be a business owner who is benefiting off of a system that is exploitive by its very nature. And to be honest, I don't know if there might is going to be a deeper conclusion to today than that. Just recognizing that you don't have to be fabulously wealthy to be the beneficiary of an exploitative system. Okay, so Wei said, I'm losing my point. What was the question? Rosner replies, are there affirmative things restaurants can change to create a more equitable system? Wei says, the options available to workers are limited when this larger system exists as it does. It's super strange right now to see all this energy around organizing for the benefits of owners and the ownership class, which again, ding, 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 so true. 
If there's anything I think should be done, it's that restaurant owners should abandon entirely their pursuit of a bailout specific to the industry and focus on policy and government programs that support people generally. If everyone had access to healthcare, housing, leisure, education for their children, education for themselves, all these things I think are rights. And if all these things they had access to were of high quality, I'm sure some business owners wouldn't even return to ownership. Who doggy, put a pin in that. Got a story for you, but I want to get a little further along. So I'm not interrupting every 10 seconds. The only truly affirmative and sustainable response is a governmental response, one that's universal, that's agnostic of industries, at least initially, and that focuses on developing a really robust social safety net so we don't have to rely on unfortunate fake safety nets like bad restaurant jobs. When I read this, I almost started crying. Uh, Quick story time. I grew up in a trailer in Chatteroy, Washington. We didn't have a ton of money, but there was always enough my parents worked their asses off to get where they've gotten in life. And I don't want to say nothing was handed to them because actually things were handed to them. They worked really, really hard alongside those things. And they were able to claw their way into what feels like a lower middle to middle class existence. My dad was a janitor. My mom was a teacher's aide. And my dad worked at the VA hospital. So they both actually had government jobs, which means we always had pretty good health care. But we literally had a hard time putting food on the table for a good chunk of my life. I think I was a pretty perceptive little kid. And I just remember the anxiety just sloughing off my parents and filling the room sometimes. And I think they did their damnedest to hide it from my brother and I. But you just can't hide that sort of thing. You can't hide that kind of anxiety. We're creatures that are meant to understand social cues even from an early age. So I got it. My brother and I got it. My dad had worked out a thing at his job where he could work four 10-hour shifts Monday through Thursday. And then he would work the fifth day with my uncle, my great uncle Snooky, who owned a glass shop in Cheney. So my dad would work at the hospital four days a week. And then he would take his fifth day and work another 10 out installing windows and doors with my uncle Snook. People have told me it's the whitest thing ever to have a great uncle Snooky. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but his name was Don, but everybody called him Snook. Eventually, my dad was able to buy that business from Uncle Snooky. I think my uncle carried the contract so my dad didn't have to get a traditional loan, and he was able to use that to save up enough money to then get a traditional loan, pay my uncle off. And so when I say that my dad worked his ass off and also got help, that's what I mean. There's literally no way my parents could have bought a glass shop that had been in business for 20 years without that connection. That's just not how things work. Okay, story time about me. I was a journalist for eight years, like 10 years, but full-time for eight years. I was a freelancer for a while, living in my parents' basement, trying to make money, actually working at my dad's shop some of the time while I was writing pieces, trying to build up a portfolio, trying to get a full-time gig. That was about a year and a half, and then I got the job at the Inlander, and I stayed there for close to eight years, seven and a half years. Dear listener, I would still be a journalist today if I could. I left journalism because I couldn't pay my bills, and that's how I ended up in advertising and whatever. The, the rigmarole that has brought me to here now began with the simple catalyst that I noticed one day my credit card balance kept going up, not by a lot, but just like a little bit, and I could never seem to pay it off. And I realized that because my now wife and I were able to buy a home, again, another thing I feel very privileged and thankful for, the the home, the cost of the mortgage was about the same cost as the rent we were paying, 
but there's also all these other costs. There's taxes, but then there's just maintenance on a house. And like, we literally could not continue doing the work we were both doing because she worked at a museum and afford a very modest house. So even though I did not want to leave journalism, I left journalism and got a job in advertising. And that's kind of yada yada. Five years later, I, I'm where I am now. Although it's been incredibly awesome to build a team, to have colleagues that you love and care about. My passion, my love is telling stories about people and just telling stories in general, learning from people and telling stories. And journalism is kind of a perfect fusion of those. But I was unable to do what I loved doing and also pay my bills, keep food on the table, support my family. Starting maybe two years ago, this sent me into a pretty dark place. I've I've mostly recovered from now, but I had this feeling that I had built something that did actually sustain me that was, you know, making it possible to live. And as a result of that, I, there was a team around me, this thing we had created, this business was responsible to them as well to keep them alive, keep them fed, keep them clothed, keep them healthy. I'm one of the sort of linchpins that started it. And therefore I'm responsible for all of this Unless like it's my responsibility for it to succeed. Cause it actually, it's, it's pretty good at succeeding without me, but it is definitely my responsibility if it fails. And that was brutal for me because I didn't see a way out. I couldn't see a way out. And by that time, you know, we had made these decisions because I had as a young worker had never had great health insurance until I went into advertising So I wanted to make sure that our teams did. So really before we could even afford it, we offered really, really good healthcare and, you know, a modest, like the best we could do, but a modest uh, retirement and other benefits. And so on the one hand, I was very proud to have done that, to build this thing that is able to take care of people. But on the other hand, I just wanted to be a writer. That's all I wanted to do. My whole, I just wanted to be a writer. And so I remember I was out, we went and got coffee at Indaba, my parents and I, and we were just, we took it to a park and we were just chatting. And I asked my dad this question because I had seen him working the glass shop through most of my high school and then through, you know, college at a slightly longer degree of remove. And then, you know, after college, when I was trying to either, you know, get into grad school or become a writer. I worked with out there with him for a little while. And so I saw both this man who really loved the work in some ways. It was a problem he loved solving, helping, and and he loved helping people, you know, make their homes more safe and efficient and and warmer and less drafty. But he hated invoices. He he never really hired anybody because I think that was a responsibility he didn't want to take on. My mom eventually came out and sort of worked in the office and helped with that. And she was an absolutely integral part of that time of the business's life. But she eventually went and got a different job later on. And so she was able to sort of move in and out of the business. But I had a sense that my dad was just kind of not trapped in it, but kind of trapped in it. And some aspects of it he absolutely loved and other aspects I could tell he absolutely despised. So anyway, with this park and I just asked him because I was feeling a lot of those things. I said, Hey dad, would you have wanted, if you could have paid all your bills, if you could have taken care of the family, if you could have like bought a decent house, if you could have done, you know, gone fishing on the weekends when you wanted to, would you have ever bought the business or would you have just been a window and door guy? Would you have just installed windows and doors? And at first he started to say like, well, no, I, I, I liked the the challenge of X and Y and invoices and, you know, the bank stuff and whatever. But then I asked him just pretty honestly, I was like, did you though? Because it didn't seem like you did. It didn't seem like you enjoyed that part of it. And he said, eventually, no, I think I would have just been happier 
as a worker. So again, reading this uh, interview this morning, that was like the second time I almost cried because that's a thought I've also had that Wei just expresses here really beautifully. If we took care of more of people's basic needs, if we didn't have to worry, if I didn't have to worry about healthcare, if I could get paid a decent wage being a journalist, I would still be a journalist. The only reason I'm doing what I'm doing right now, and I, it seems like the only reason my dad did what he did 20 years ago was as a response to a system that is so unbalanced and so inadequate and so tilted against workers that you can't just do a thing you love, get a paycheck for it, and support yourself and your family in this country. You just can't do it. Obviously, if you're a doctor, you can do it. And if you're one of the few people that's in a very strong union, like my brother's a steam fitter, he's a tradesman, but he has the benefit of a strong union. This is partially what episode four is going to be about if I ever get it done. If there are structures to support you, but these are not governmental structures, this is the structure of a union, it's the structure of collective bargaining, then you can. But if you're just a person floating in the world, especially in America, you're fucked. And so if you have the opportunity, if you have the access, maybe you start a business to make your life a little bit better. But then do you see the problem with that? Because then you have to rely on those business people to say, God, I scraped and clawed my way to where I'm at. I don't want anyone else to have to live through that. But again, as Wei already pointed out earlier, because profits are declining, which is a thing Marx talked about. And to be honest, he predicted profits are declining across industries as they mature. And as they get sort of cannibalized by things like finance capital there, even if you wanted to take exceptionally good care of people as a business owner, the market won't allow it, which is why so many restaurant tours and coffee shop owners and stuff were just panicked about how they didn't think customers were going to come back if they had to raise the, their prices by a buck to accommodate the increased minimum wage in Washington state. So that's where I think way is 100% spot on. These have to be universal programs. They have to benefit everybody. And it's going to have to take us demanding it happen at a governmental level. Small business is not going to save us. Okay, back to Rossner. She asks, the Let It Die video was based on footage you shot pre-COVID-19 for a different series. What was that originally supposed to be? Way responds, it was going to be a show. The working title was Hard to Swallow, a food show not about food, where we wanted to show the consequences of the production and consumption of food. Our first episode was going to be about New Orleans, how it's a black city, the food is black, the folks that visit there come for all that black shit. But the black chefs don't get the attention. They don't get the awards. They don't get the same recognition as white chefs, which they are due. That's one of the reasons I wanted to read this interview, not just because of the directness of his language, but because literally my access to him was filtered through a white writer at a white publication. Way continues, but then COVID-19 happened, and it's such an overwhelming story. It touches everything. This is, in essence, what our show would have been about anyways. So we decided to recut some of what we'd already shot to tell a story about COVID-19, one which is about more than the resilience, and I'm using scare quotes there, quote-unquote resilience, of the restaurant industry, but instead is a larger story, one that's historically grounded in other disasters that have affected communities and industries. What came from that? Who can we expect to win? Who can we expect to lose? So let's just take a second and think about that. Back in 2009, a couple banks failed, but not that many. Most of the banks got bailed out. The homeowners didn't. Homeowners who were disproportionately uh, minorities. I think I said this in a previous episode, black wealth dropped more under the Obama administration than any other administration in history because all of that wealth was tied up in mortgages. So 
mortgage holders got bailed out, homeowners got destroyed. And now what are we seeing? As far as I can tell, there hasn't been even a single bank failure. Again, large businesses are still are actually thriving. That's one of the reasons the stock market is up. The stock market's literally recovered, guys, while there is still 20% unemployment. And there was just an article, I think, in the New York Times that even though companies are saying they're going to try to bring all these workers back, analysts are expecting that 40% of the lost jobs are just gone. So what is that, like 20 million unemployed so far? So 40%, 8 million, 8 million jobs just not coming back. And those permanently lost jobs may be a response to a loss of revenue, but paying fewer people also represents on the balance sheet a savings. So while on paper, it might look like the economy is contracted, the wealthiest people at the heads of these companies or the people that are invested in these companies aren't losing a dime, dudes. So again, to Wade's point, the same people win, the same people lose. Rossner asks, why did you choose to focus on Reem Asil, a Syrian-Palestinian chef based in Oakland, for the first episode? Way responds, I think Reem is interesting. Now that I think about it, in a way, she parallels Barack Obama. She's an organizer. She's someone who's an idealist and doing radical work, but who also thinks that the way to actualize her vision of the world is by working within a more conventional system. She thinks about it like, if she's on the inside she can change things from there. The first half of the episode, which we shot before COVID-19, is the two of us dancing around that question. Can you renovate a burning house? Can you renovate a single room in a burning house? I do think after that conversation, I had convinced her to be less optimistic about working within the system. But as she says in the show, she believes that you can have a dual existence, that you have to occupy multiple lives. One of the lives she occupies is running a business that sustains her and her family. And one of the lives pushes for a future that is abundantly more equitable. But then for Let It Die, we interviewed her again, this time after the pandemic hit. And now she's like, shit is crazy and I can't continue to do the work I said I could do. You can't make concessions because any concessions you make will help you forget or ignore that a radical system can hardly exist in a conventional space. That's interesting to me. That's a level of complexity in a person that's hard to find. Luke, again, I'm going to link to that video in the show notes. It's really, really beautiful. But this is a huge question to me, and I just don't know the answer to it. The idea, I'm deeply sympathetic to the idea that you can't run a radical program within a conventional system. And I'm deeply sympathetic to Reem Asil saying here that she can't do it anymore because a radical system can't exist in a conventional space. But what's unknown is, is does that mean she's just going to close down her restaurant and let all those people that are working for her as like a, just the absolute most well-meaning boss possible to go look for other stuff so that she can be a radical. That also feels like a kind of privilege. And I'm not saying for her, I'm saying maybe what I'm saying is for myself, if I were to do that, if I were just to say, fuck it, sorry guys, I'm going to go fight the system. Not only would it be hard for me to feed myself, but then I would also be putting pressure on those people that you're trying to help who are stuck in the conventional system. I don't know, man, it's tough. Rosner again, in the video after your initial conversation, you do say you think you've made her more cynical, but you also say you might be a little more open to her belief in changing things from within the system. Way says, I don't think I was converted though. There's a difference between cynicism and pragmatism. With cynicism comes certain dourness and with pragmatism comes a more concerted choice to act. I guess what I was saying was that after our conversation, I felt less sad. Not that I was any more convinced that what she was doing could work. I definitely believe in making money so you could survive. And I would like to think that the work I do is grounded in numbers and lives. What I 
do believe, and what maybe Reem could believe, but she doesn't exactly say this, is that I don't think money is a solution. I do believe that not having money is a problem, but the part where money is not a solution is so important. It takes us back to the idea of restaurants as a safety net. Not having money is a fucking problem, and that's why people need to work. But having money is not a solution, especially when you don't have enough money. This is such an important point that I want to like dig into more in a, in a later episode. It actually might be coming up in what I was working on in episode four. I'm having a hard time remembering, but oh no, no it totally is. <laughs> Once I get that one done, we'll talk about it in greater detail. But there's an idea that I feel a tremendous responsibility to provide healthcare for the people that I work with, but actually employer-based healthcare historically functions less like a benefit and more like shackles. Think about this. If you don't have universal health care and you hate your job and you want to leave, but your job gives you health care, doesn't that add a, another level to your decision making that makes it harder for you to just say, you know what, I quit. I'm actually not going to work for a while. I'm going to be unemployed. I'm going to get my head right. I'm going to figure out what I want to do. Or I may be just going to devote myself full time to finding a new job, a job that's better for me. Or you know what, I just need a break. I need to take a month and just chill out between jobs and I've got a little bit, I can pay my rent and I don't have to worry about healthcare. That's not something that people can do in America. And that's why this point, even though it's, it can kind of come and go easily in the, in the shape of an interview or whatever is so absolutely fundamental. Not having money is a problem in America, but having money is not necessarily a solution in America. Rossner asks, money has been a subject of so much of your, what do you consider your work? Events, installations, public performance art, commercial actions? Way responds, my mom's always like, how are you going to make money? And I'm like, look, bro, God will help us all. You can call my work whatever you want. Rossner says, let's just stick with your work then. Quote unquote, your work. Your most recent event in December involved asking hospitals to buy packaged food at a high markup and you'd give the profits to the communities they served. Way response. It's interesting because it dovetails with what we're seeing right now with the pandemic because it was all about racial health disparities. It was born from a conversation I had with a medical doctor who does social justice work, Michelle Morse. Infant mortality in the black community is higher than white infant mortality. And one of the places where this disparity is especially noticeable is Kalamazoo, Michigan. So that's where the work began. We called it baby zoos because of Kalamazoo. If you look at what's being done to address these disparities, all the efforts are focused on medical solutions with a lot of urgency around improving access to care, improving delivery of health services. But the doctors working on these problems, at least in Kalamazoo, they'll all tell you that the issue isn't just that. It's a broad range of factors. The so-called social determinants of health, housing, income, education, all these things actually impact the health and outcomes of black folks. So what I wanted to do was focus my efforts on the more the most direct health correlation factor I could, which is income. It's about the resource transfer to address racial health disparities. That was the plan. What I found out was that hospitals didn't care. Hospitals and health, health organizations didn't care. Rossner, what will you do next? Way. I figure it's easier to focus on individuals, so I'm going direct to consumer. I'm launching a pantry staples brand in the next couple of months that does the same thing I was trying to do with baby zoos, sell food products and distribute the bulk of the profits to black communities. We're not asking questions. We're not putting folks who get the money on camera. We're not asking for testimonials. There's a tendency among folks who are engaged in charity work to trot out the beneficiaries of the charity, and I think that's fucked up. We're just going to say, hey, take this money and use it. We're going to be selling salt, and the salt is going to be called lot. Rossner asked, 
After Lot's wife, who turned into a pillar of salt, Way says, yeah, you got it. I'm also working with the sustainable spice company Burlap and Barrel on a condiment brand, Disappearing Condiments, which isn't up and running yet. We'll be selling fermented locust beans, which are indigenous to West Africa. Rossner asks, will you be offering asymmetric pricing, charging more to white customers, for example, like you've done at some of your events? Way responds, no, not with the fermented locust beans. There are some things we're thinking through with the salt, but I'm not sure if this is the right avenue for it. The idea is just to have a competitively priced high quality product that competes with the more conventional condiments and pantry staples. See, this is why this article was so engaging to me because that's what I was talking about earlier, right? The idea of like you have to be competitively priced in order to succeed in the market. So doing something like asking white people to pay $1,000 for chicken might be fine for like a finite art action to really like underscore the disparities that you're talking about as part of the art. But if you want to actually feed people, put food in their mouths, he's doing a competitively priced product with a sustainable company and he's not doing anything cute with it. So even though he said previously, like, how can you work within the system to do something radical? Literally, his next project could not exist if he didn't work within the system. It just demonstrates how little room there is to maneuver if you're trying to make change. It's just so tightly constrained. So Rossner clarifies, like it's just really good salt and people buy it because it's good salt, not because they're going out of their way to buy it in order to exercise a sense of white guilt. Way responds, what I've realized with the work I'm doing, hosting dinners, doing these, what did you call them? Public performance actions. You have to convince the customer of your ideology before they divest of their resources. With the salt, I wanted to try to decouple the two. If you need salt, buy the salt. You don't need to believe that you're anti-racist or believe that you are racist or even believe that the world is fucked up. You can just buy the salt. I want to create viable products that can compete in the marketplace so I can extract as much resources as possible and redirect them to the communities that need them the most. So again, working within the system to destroy the system. And to be clear, I'm not being critical of him here. I'm just sort of going through this and actually commiserating with some of the points of friction I've noticed of how hard it is to change a system from within, but how also impossible it seems to change it from without. So then Rossner jumps in. Isn't this the same approach you're so skeptical of and let it die? That seems like exactly what Reem was trying to convince you of in the first half of the episode. Way response, I guess. This is not an ideological question, right? It's a material question. When you can't buy malaria medicine, or you can't put food on your table, it becomes about more than ideology. It's a concrete material battle. I mean, people are dying. Right now, people are dying. A month ago in Lagos, where my parents live, there were young, able-bodied men going into neighborhoods demanding food from people under threat of violence. There were other people who formed a militia to encircle the neighborhoods and keep the men away. This is reality. That's not a consequence of Africans or Nigerians being incompetent or unprepared. It's a consequence of a global system that extracts more and more from Africans, people of color, black folks, working class folks. That needs to be addressed. If that means running a conventional business, I guess it is what it is. I'm conventional in that sense. I don't want people to die. And that's the rub. And I guess when I was talking about how the the veneer of like that top level sort of business practices obscures the massive machine designed to extract capital that lies underneath that we don't get a good glimpse at because it just takes like little bits and pieces as a finance capitalist or it's it's so huge and monolithic that it's hard to even see. It's hard to see the forest for the trees. That's true at like a governmental or a societal level too, right? Like what he's saying here is that like, 
he's sort of stepping in front of the criticism we've all heard millions of times like oh these failed states they're so these poor states they just can't take care of themselves we don't just hear it with like africa you heard it with like greece and spain during the european debt crisis you hear it all the time about latin america when in fact it's not actually nigeria's problem covid is not nigeria's problem covid is all of our problems and that's what makes it such a fascinating lens because insofar as it is enveloped literally the entire world all of our supply structures all of our systems it's not just a mortgage crisis that started with subprime loans and spidered its way out to like big chunks of the financial markets it's literally the entire world is shut down and so what it's exposing isn't which countries are good and which countries are bad it's not exposing who's prepared and who's not because one thing that's absolutely clear is that america was the least prepared and it's really tough and people are suffering but they're not suffering as bad as people in lagos nigeria They aren't suffering so bad that there are armed mobs roaming the streets looking for food. So this isn't about disaster preparedness. It's about capitalist exploitation. The places we've been exploiting the longest and extracting wealth from the most are the ones that are least capable. The the veneer is thinnest between some semblance of society and utter barbarism. And so, yeah, fuck it. Let's start a salt company just to get people some money so they can buy food, right? Okay, this is where it gets really good. I mean, it's been really good, but now I was really feeling my whiteness in this next part. So Rosner pivots. Last year, you were profiled by Brett Martin and GQ, and now that piece is a finalist for a James Beard Award. Uh, As an aside, the James Beard Award is like the Oscars for food, but they also do stuff like awards for food writing and stuff. So it's like literally, if you're in the food world, it's the biggest award. It's like, yeah, no, it's like a Pulitzer. It's like a Pulitzer or an Oscar or whatever. It's like as big as it gets. Now that piece is a finalist for the James Beard Award. That must feel strange to see someone be rewarded for observing you so closely. And that's a really, actually, that's a really perceptive question because profile writing is, you're just really looking at somebody else's life and trying to be as perceptive as possible about it and maybe injecting some of your own insights. But it's really, you're just like, this guy is potentially getting the biggest award in food for just writing a story about a different person who's very interesting and that other person is not up for the award. Way responds, it's a mindfuck on a couple levels. A friend pointed out that I myself write about myself and now somebody else is being recognized for writing about my life, even though I already do this. Her example, and I thought it was great, was that it's like somebody going to, and this is bracketed, the legendary New Orleans chef, Leah Chase's kitchen, watching her make fried chicken, working with her, cooking, taking her recipe, tweaking it, and then winning an award for that recipe. I was like, shit, that's incredible. But also Brett, who wrote the essay, is a friend. He had become more of a friend in the course of writing the profile. As we started developing our relationship, I was very critical of his coverage of white people, white chefs specifically. I remember saying to him, Brett, this exploration of the minutia of whiteness is problematic. I was like, man, we don't need another Sean Brock profile. The shit he's doing is cool, but with all due respect, we don't need to hear about him again. Can we get some other people on the books? So Way stops there, but the the thing left unsaid is that he gives this white writer a criticism about needing to focus on people of color, which the writer then does and gets an award for it, right? So as a writer, an activist, a person of color, Way is doubly fucked because he's critiquing the system. The system in this case, in the form of this writer, Brett Martin, responds to his criticism which only reinforces the whiteness of the system. The system gets to pat itself on the back for being incrementally more woke. It's bitterly ironic. I would laugh if there weren't so much vomit in my mouth. So then Rosner asks, do you hope the profile wins? 
Way says, I hope Brett wins because I like Brett, but it doesn't matter to me. I actually got emails and texts congratulating me. And I was like, no, dude, that's not me. That's not me at all. I have a book coming out about my actual life. So maybe people can tune into that. Rossner asks, when's it coming out? Way says, I'm still writing it. My editors are being very kind to me. I do want to say about the profile that I'm ambivalent about media, but I also crave it. I need it because my work is not tangible and it's small in scope. So I need these media milestones as reminders of my work to myself and to others. It's also my calling card. It lets people know what I'm about. When I introduce myself in an email, I say, my name is Tunde. I'm an, a Nigerian immigrant artist, cook, and writer, and then I hyperlink to the GQ article and something I wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle. People click on GQ's website and they see my fucking oily face on there and they don't even need to read the thing. They just know I'm for real and they give me a chance. I need that. That was just like a kick in the gut to me this morning, just an absolute kick in the gut. Maybe I'll just read it again. So I need these media milestones as reminders of my work to myself and to others. It's also my calling card. It lets people know what I'm about. When I introduce myself in an email, I say my name is Tunde. I'm a Nigerian immigrant artist, cook, and writer. And then I hyperlink to the GQ article and something I wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle. People click on GQ's website and they see my fucking oily face on there and they don't even need to read the thing. They just know that I'm for real and they give me a chance. I need that. But I also realized that GQ didn't write the essay. It was a person. Brett Martin wrote it. And by that, I mean that GQ is a network of people. Brett made the case for me. And then there's an editor who is also a person. They put the piece together and it came out. People made that choice. A lot of the time when some article comes out about me, and I'm sure when this interview comes out, it'll happen. People will be like, congratulations, as if it came by divine force. But it's people. Helen Rossner woke up one day and was like, let me talk to Tunde. And that's it. You make decisions, you have the imprimatur of the New Yorker, but the New Yorker is made up of people, and they're people who are mostly white. So my ambivalence toward these institutions is my ambivalence toward the institutions of whiteness. My work is no more or less worthy because it's written about, but I'm so glad it is because otherwise I would be more disposable than I am. Then Helen's like, I wouldn't say you're disposable. And Way responds, shit, Helen, we're all disposable. You're disposable too. The New Yorker could be like, Helen, we're downsizing because people aren't advertising anymore. That's how this works. Same with me. We all have to find ways to keep ourselves indispensable for the time being. And that's it. That's the end. It kind of seems like it trails off a little bit, but as I reflect on it, it actually is maybe the perfect place to end. He's talking about this whole system in the case of the New Yorker, that's a, a system, an institution of whiteness, but it's also an institute. It's an institution of capital, and these are the institutions that are suffering this shock right now. It's not as big of an institution as like General Electric, and it's certainly not as big of an institution as like the United States government, but it's an institution. And the implicit framing of saying he's disposable, and that Helen Rossner, the interviewer, is disposable, and that the the New Yorker could make a decision because of it's the balance sheets we were talking about earlier just to be like, Hey, Helen, you're great, man. But you know, we got to let you go. And then in the specific case of America, which we've been talking about for now, four episodes, if Helen were to lose her job, she would not immediately be able to benefit from a social safety net like we have in so many other countries where she's like, well, goddamn, I don't know where my next writing gig's coming from, but at least I don't have to worry about catching COVID and dying because I don't have health insurance anymore. And so, yeah, man, I actually think ways 
absolutely right. We're all disposable. And part of what I hope we are all thinking about doing, while there is a bit of a cushion, to the extent that there's a cushion right now in America because of this virus, because it's such a universalizing thing that everybody gets a little bit, corporations get massively more than the rest of us, but we all get a little bit to just be able to breathe because the system doesn't know what to do right now. I hope we're taking this time to just be like, how the fuck do we fight to not be disposable? And I have no idea the answer of that, but I think that thinking about these totalizing systems, these all-encompassing systems, in a way that tries to grasp their all-encompassingness is going to be absolutely key. And I think Tunde, in his way, is so perceptive. And I don't know if it's because he grew up in Nigeria and now he lives here. Maybe that's part of it. But he also seems like a uniquely perceptive individual who sees systems. And this is the the most important thing in the world, I think, is just the ability to sort of cut through and see these inner workings. Because this is about more than like national chauvinism. It's more than just looking at these the Nigerian people he was talking about and being like, oh, those poor, sad people don't know how to run a government or ditto with Greece or ditto with Spain and even Italy at a point. There was so much chauvinism from the West. And I'm even meaning like the Western part of Western Europe, the Northern part of Western Europe in America. And it's absolutely about racism because you know hurricane katrina all the stuff we're talking about there all the stuff that came up in this this article that just in order to even like for this my money tune day away could be motherfucking malcolm gladwell he is that perceptive and that brilliant and maybe he will be someday but what he says here about needing the imprimatur of white establishments and white writers is so perceptive but it's not just that right this isn't just about chauvinism it isn't just about racism underlying all of it it's not just about the inability to get health care if you need it it's not just about not being able to pay your bills if you lose your absolutely tenuous restaurant job it's about all of those things in totality and underlying all of those things is the system of of capitalism that cares more about profit margins than people. And in fact, that only cares about people insofar as they facilitate profit. And that doesn't mean that every boss you have ever had sees you as a profit center, but the system sees every worker as a profit center. And actually, even as a guy who owns a business but has loans, those loans and my ability to repay those loans make me a profit center for them. I am a instrument of capital, not to maybe the banker that gave me the money, maybe I'm a person to him, but to the institution he works for. My friends and I are instruments for the extraction of capital. And I can't remember if this actually made it into one of the episodes or if it was one of the ones that got organ trailed, but this is one of the reasons I feel so passionately about finding every way we can, even if it's just through, again, creating a, a decent social safety net or giving people Medicare for all, to in any way we can take human beings off the balance sheet of companies, take them off the profit and loss statements, make them a separate category that isn't like the widgets that make the computer or the individual leaves of lettuce that go onto the burger I just ate last night from a restaurant that makes humans. <laughs> and it seems fucking crazy to have to say this, right? It seems absurd, but it needs to be said because under capitalism, there is no distinction between the cost of a worker, labor cost, and the cost of whatever commodity that laborer is turning into value. They sit with equal reverence on the balance sheets and on the profit and loss statements of every company that adheres to standard, generally accepted accounting practices. If music or art or food is the language of love, accounting is the language of capital. And in the language of accounting, you and me, buddy, are no different. Our cost on the balance sheet of life 
or on the profit and lot statement of life, our cost sits there right alongside a rack of lamb. We are no better and no worse to capital and equally easy to cut, equally easy to downsize, equally easy to squeeze value out of, and in some ways easier to squeeze value out of than something that is made by a different massive corporation that can exert a similar amount of pressure on the company trying to do the squeezing so that they can actually maintain the value of a widget maybe more easily than a single atomized worker can maintain his own value in the marketplace. So yeah, Tundeiwe, holy shit, you're right, man. We are all disposable and I don't... (laughs) I don't know how we solve it, but that is absolutely the problem. That is absolutely the job. Fighting against the idea that people are disposable until we're not disposable anymore. 